Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Books Boys. Live from the Grand Library. The Dean and DJ. He's PJ. Hello there. How's it going? I'm the Dean, and we are the Books Boys. This oh, is the, yes. This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. What's it all about, books? Well, they are paperous objects, PJ. Pa- paperous objects. But, you know, um, it's episode 18. So we are, we are Books Man. The rebrand is in progress. Oh my god! It's, I thought we were Sweet Sixteen. It felt like we were Sweet Sixteen just two months ago. But yeah, no, we're, we're big. We've, we're big lads now. We are boys no more. Oh no! So what's it? So it's going to be a book, book, book man, guys. Booksman. Yeah. <laughs> Too much hassle to change the name. I think. PJ, how are you? Good. Yeah. Just still uh, going through the scrolls. So I've been trying to decipher. Uh, I believe they are plays by Chris or Marlowe that no one has ever read before. So what happened was I went to the old second-hand shop, right? And they, they seem to have a lot of them, not in the mm-hmm. usual display, but for some reason they kept in the bathroom. So they <laughs> okay. kept the good stuff in the bathroom. And they're, ro- they're scrolls, they're, they're, they're rolled up, rhymes, yeah? Yes, yes, rolled mm. up, and they looked they didn't look very new or anything like that, and quite grey, mm. so I assume this this looks like this looks like Chris or Marlowe play. I thought. I think and, so. Uh, you know, I find it weird when they give you like the multi packs of those books. You can buy like four or like nine in a packet in plastic. It's a very strange thing to do with the books. It's very if it's disrespectful for your old, yeah. for your old kid. You know what I mean? But um, yes, I've been trying to decipher. It might be one of the more uh, one of his more controversial plays. I'm not sure. So I'm trying to <laughs> see what Fa- Faustus wasn't. Uh, oh no, that was that was not. No, that was Marlowe. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah Faustus yeah. wasn't controversial enough. You know. <laughs> Oh, indeed, yeah, yes. Ah, Faustus. Ah, Faustus. Yes, you can, you can hear our review of Dr. Faustus on our Patreon. Indeed, and hold on, it's coming back to me, hold on. I, I, it's, it's, what was it again, uh, Faustus? Ah, Faustus, now. Oh, how's it go? Oh, oh just, I just find out words. No, no, I know now. Ah, Faustus, now thou hast but one hour to live. There we go, dramatic stuff. <laughs> um, dramatic stuff. Almost, almost, almost up there with "Is this a holiday?" Um, just from the level of <laughs> the level of sheer drama, you know. Sheer drama, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stop! Of- stop! You, 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 uh, you ever moving orbs of heaven, seize the time and let midnight never come. Now, do you get an Emmy for that? 
<laughs> Unless I start smacking people in the head, yeah. <laughs> Guys, you can actually hear our, our Dr. Faustus and, and our Shakespeare's and everything at patreon.com slash booksboys. Uh, we, we didn't do Julius Caesar yet, but uh, Playboy Alex... Is this a holiday? Playboy Alex stepped in and we did Macbeth uh, this month. So there's still an episode out. So if everyone wants to hear us on Shakespeare, you can still get that. You know, we did a, we did a lot this month, actually, because I released another interview from The Vault with a great musician, nice. Eric Erdman. We have the final episode of Dark Place Dreamers with Robert. It's the one with the song, the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place show. I did nice. a Music Man episode three where I talked about our Spotify songs. So there's a lot of stuff on there for the guys to check out for only £2.50. Nice. But PJ, shall we talk about what we've read this month? Go right ahead. So what did so I I think I have a a feeling there might be some Alexandre Dumas? There is some Dumas. We're gonna we're gonna start with Dumas, but just before I just before I do, this month's sponsor is 0800 Is this a dagger I see before me? Um, oh because we reviewed Macbeth, so I thought I'd find a, a, an applicable sponsor. So what you do is, when you when you have an object in front of you, you just take out your phone real quick and you dial 0800, is this a dagger I see before me? And then they will <laughs> do a video call with you, and then they will say yes or no. Either yes, you're about to get attacked with a dagger, or no, that's just something else. That's like, yeah. You know, I, I hope they're prompt with your replies, because it might be too late. <laughs> There's some waiting times. Out. It's a busy ad, a busy, <laughs> busy service, you know. It is indeed. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. I'd be a bit more careful, young Dean. Yeah, I think. I think the Scottish play is a more Scottish play is a more appropriate name. For this. <laughs> you're frolicking around with this. You're I'm throwing this this scandalous name around. Here. I'm taking my life in my own hands. You know. Indeed, you are. That's that, you know. Well, you asked for Dumas, and you shall have it. The first book I read was the the second part of what we covered last month: the Joseph Balsamo oh. Memoirs of a Physician. Um, look, this nonsense is all over the place. I have no idea what I have read. I'm looking oh, at the Wikipedia. On. It's because it's part two of Joseph Balsamo. And, and you did oh no, you did tell me that you were reading uh, a version where the actual translator decided not to translate the last one pages because he thought it was unnecessary. Yeah, I, let, so let me explain. So first of all, there's this book called Joseph Balsamo, but it's also been released as Memoirs of a Physician, but it's also been released as Cagliostro, as Madame du Barry, as the Elixir of Life. Like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> there's two volume sets. There's six volume sets. There's three volume sets. I read two volumes. I'm gonna, you know, today I, I read volume two. It turns out that the two volumes I have also include the sequel, which is Andrea de Taverni, which is also known as The Mesmerist's Victim. But they just cut out the last, you know, 60 pages. So, like, I read two and a half books. Like, I don't know what I've read, you know? <laughs> oh, my God, okay. And, yeah, there's a note at the end. There's a big scene with, like, a house burning down and, you know, oh, a big, big dramatic scene. And then the editor just puts a note and says, well, after that big climax, the rest would be boring. So we've cut out the last 60 pages, you know, the and end. Then you said, <laughs> and I believe you said it was quite important, actually. Yeah, that? So the stuff that happens in those last pages, first of all, it wraps up the story with our main characters from the beginning, with Gilbert, with Andrea. Um, otherwise, the, the original story has no conclusion. But the stuff that happens is important. Like we solve, you know, who raped Andrea? Like stuff that needs to be solved in the book, like serious, serious matters. That the editor was just like, nah, we don't need that. It's fine. No one, no one cares about that. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> 
So I think that Joseph Balsamo is the physician, but also a mesmerist and a sorcerer and a, a, everything. He's also called the Count de Phoenix. He's also called Akarat. He talks about having been around in the time of Julius Caesar. So like he's lived a long time. It's not clear how or why. He has this old man with him who has lived a long time. He's 100. And he's trying to complete the elixir of life with the Philosopher's Stone to make himself be, you know, young again. And he needs to kill a baby or a like a young girl. And well, Balsamo won't help him do that. He's just going to let his old friend die. Even though in the house there is a young girl willing to die, trying very hard to commit suicide because she does not want to live with Balsamo who keeps her prisoner and also says that she's his wife, but she got married whilst hypnotized. So some of the things are a little bit bit creepy. (laughs) Okay. A little bit. And she's trying to like dash her head against the wall. And like, she just desperately wants to die. You know, it's like, what do you want to do this evening? I want to die, you know? And it's just a bit bizarre that I don't know if we're meant to like this guy or not. Cause like, he's not, those actions are not the actions of a hero. Right, yeah. And it's it's never also explained, you know, how he's hypnotizing these people. He can find out anything. So, like, if I were to hypnotize you, then I would be able to say, like, read this letter without opening the envelope, and you can do it somehow. Or, like, find out where so-and-so is, and you can see where they are, and just walk along the street, and you can see all over the country. But I don't know how. It's never explained how he's making these girls see these things. And then he leaves one of them in a state of trance, and she gets raped. Like, he's really reckless. Well, okay. So it's, you know, some of those, but he also has a moment where he rides in on a horse as the hero. Um, it's set during the reign of Louis Fifteenth in France. There's a big mob. They're all fighting because, you know, political uprisings in France. And poor Andrea is going to get crushed. And poor little Gilbert, who loves her, lifts her in his arms and raises her up to this valiant man on a horse who is Balsamo. And Balsamo takes her away. And he ends up with a little torn bit of her dress and she's so mean to poor gilbert because she he was her old servant and she thinks he's trash it's like i literally saved her life i risked my life i almost died i got like a you know body bruised and beaten and bones broken to rescue her and she's like how dare you even have touched me you know like just really really ungrateful and and that's sad um and she thanks Balsamo because he passes her to Balsamo on the horse. And she says, well, he's the one who really saved me and doesn't really care about poor Gilbert. Um, okay. And I think, you know, that's that affected me a little bit. I think that's mean. But what I love is her father, the Baron, old school aristocrat. And this is, if we okay. drive through here, our car is going to crush these people. He says, well, crush away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. You know, these, these peasants, yeah, kill them. It's fine, you know. Oh, so it sounds like very radical. Um, this is not, not not what I would expect of uh, Three Musketeers or, or even Count of Monte Cristo, this kind of behavior. It's a slightly different vibe. I mean, it's not as good as either of those two. Like, I've, I've got okay. to be honest. Um, okay. But there are, you know, bits that I like about it. It does have romantic mm-hmm. scenes. We, you know, it, it's set in the court. We get all the royal stuff. It's quite nice. Um, Balsamo, I just don't know if I like him. Like he comes out of things relatively unscathed, um, without kind of giving too much away. But it's difficult okay. to say whether he's the good guy or not because some things he does are pretty shady. He's also the leader of like an underground cult. You know, it's a bit weird as to what's going on. He's like the grand master of the cult or whatever. You know, it's just a bit. Okay. It's a bit strange, and as you know, he's keeping this poor wife who's 
visibly trying to commit suicide at every turn and, and escape from him and, you know, runs away and he hypnotizes her to come back. So there's, there's definitely wow. things that I don't like about him, you know? And it's hard. You don't like Andrea de Taverny because she's really stuck up. And you like little Gilbert because he's a nice chap and, you know, but then he does some bad things near the end. So there's not really any heroes in this book. Um, okay. But I do like the philosopher, Rousseau, who returns. He's actually called Rousseau. He's Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's named. Oh, oh, he's actually a character in the book. He's a character in the book. Is Gilbert the lives philosopher? with him for a while. Yeah, and he, he, he's this, met... Go ahead. This is the Swiss philosopher, everyone, during the yeah. Enlightenment, who, um, who kind of encouraged the idea of, of like, noble savage, that, that we become uh, the opposite of the Thomas Hobbes idea, where he thinks man is wolf to man. Rousseau thought more that the natural state of man was the best state of man in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, made us made us per, per, perverted us i suppose so he's yeah. an actual character in the book okay it's interesting they talk a lot about his hatred of voltaire but voltaire never appears okay because yeah, voltaire was more the cynical run he would have thought a bit differently yeah than, um, so. and there's one bit where they they conscript rousseau to apparently he wrote a play and the king wants his like you know his court to put on this play so they, oh, they send for rousseau to come to the court and he refuses to shave and refuses to dress he just turns up in you know rags or whatever oh they all kind of know what's you know yeah and his wife's always berating him, you know, for not like advancing their social position or whatever. And he's just there and, and they're, they're performing so poorly, but obviously he can't tell them that. And it's just really weird. And then he kind of disappears from it. He doesn't really, there's not really no, a that, that, that maybe, yeah, I, I like that idea. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. There's like, there's some, there's some comic relief, you know, and then there's some real proper passionate romance where Lorenz is saying things like, I have opened this knife and stabbed myself to the heart. And, you know, <laughs> All this kind of stuff, which which I love, you know, I love all that that extreme romance, you know. There's a what my favorite line from the whole book. There's an old marshal who's always contriving to, you know, do all this stuff they do in court, you know, screw one over and all that kind of stuff. And he says, "Since the days of Alcibiades, there has been but one Richelieu in the world, and I see there will be no more after him because a relative, a descendant of the old Cardinal Richelieu from the Three Musketeers, is there, but he's not as." clever and not as effective and not, not the master manipulator of his old uh, of his old ancestor but i like they compare richelieu to alcobides he of, of ancient greek uh, ancient oh. athenian fame and, and a personal anti-hero of uh, of my own <laughs> wow, okay. so that's that's that book like we talked about it last time this is kind of the sequel uh, you know a lot happens in the bit that they they edit out so I would say that if you're reading this, look up online and try to find those last 50 or 60 pages because it's really strange to cut them out. You know, the book's yeah, 700 right, yeah. pages. Why would you cut the last 50 out of it? Yeah, that's bizarre, yeah. And tell me this and tell me, uh, tell me no more. Um, is it, uh, does it, so you've read like now a few parts of it. Does it make you want to continue the rest of it because it's a good, well, is it good literature, or is it just this is just you continuing because you're such an obsessive fan of? It's Dumas. just because I like Dumas, but the problem is Aww. this is the Marie Antoinette series, although she doesn't actually appear much in this part too. There's um, there's six more sequels, <laughs> so I don't know like where to even find them. You know, it's a, it's an eight part. Uh, oh really? Yeah, like oh, these yeah. are these are hard to come by. You saw how excited I got in the bookshop when I found like four Dumas books because they're not actually yeah, that easy they're, they're, to come by. You know, they're all available online, but they're the online ones have like more modern translations. So instead of the Chevalier de Maison Rouge, they call him like the, the Baron Redcastles. And it's like, why? Why are you translating his name? And, you know, 
stop it. Like, I want to read the book and it needs to be relatively authentic. Don't like they do this weird, yeah. simplified, Americanized translation, you know? Oh, and know. no one wants to read that. Wow. So, well, um, did you also know a little fun fact for you guys, for all you Dumas fans? Did you know that Dumas wrote a novel about werewolves and a novel about a vampire? Even I didn't know that. But there's a little fun fact for you. So yeah. I think those are the two books that you need to get, right? Because I mean, I guess the, my two passion. loves, Dumas and um, what's the thing? Twilight, right? <laughs> Twilight, exactly. Yes. <laughs> the kids uh, love yeah, it. It's, it's called The Pale Lady and it's uh, written 1849. So that's almost like 50 years before or, uh, Bram Stoker's Vampire. Wow. And it's, um, I, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it's about a about a Polish lady who's adored by two brothers. Somehow, one of them is a vampire, mm. and uh, yeah, he also wrote a, a werewolf novel a few years after that called The Wolf Leader or Le Meneur de Loup, and it is supposed to be one of the first werewolf novels ever written. So he's not just famous mm. for his kind um, of historical. And he wrote uh, some Robin Hoods as well. The guy gets around. Yeah, he did. He did. did. <laughs> and to be honest, he also wrote a cookbook, which I find very amusing. Suppose oh, so you a... you got the Dumas influence for your cookbook then? Exactly, yes, exactly for the cookbook <laughs> I'm working on. Um, and he, but he was such a he was such a, a gourmet himself, and he supposedly was a semi-professional cook. But I had no idea about. There's mm. just some interesting facts I found out. Okay. So he's got obviously he has to give it a very grand ta- uh, title. I think it's called uh, La Grande Dictionnaire de Cuisine, the Great Dictionary of Cuisine, which I find it very amusing. It's supposed to be very encyclopedic, which, which makes which makes it even more amusing. So like a kind of a cookbook encyclopedia, probably with some witty tales by Dumas himself. Mm. Well, the only thing, I, uh, my final thoughts is I did enjoy this book. Not as much as his classics, but it was still good. Um, mm. but I, I had to guess at the end who the physician even was. It's called Memoirs of a Physician, and it was never clear really <laughs> who the physician was, you know. So okay. it's, it's, not, uh, it's not his best work, but it's still, uh, there's still something there, you know. Okay, okay. Um, I read some more classics, um, PJ. I hit up our old friends, Flaubert and Balzac. Um, Ooh, it's been a little while since we read those guys. Yeah. Um, French 19th century authors that we both love, guys. I always do oh, them right. together. I like to pair them up, you know. But cool. honestly, the works I read by both were disappointing. And I'm really, I'm oh, really no. disappointed. Yeah. Oh, I mean, no, I, I read Bouvard and Pécuchet by Flaubert. Um, okay. Now, this was a copy from the 1840s I had. So the book was from the late 1830s. The first English translation was the early 1840s. I had a first wow. edition English translation. All lovely, lovely um, covers, lovely photos. Every chapter starts with like gilted or knit letters and things. It's a lovely, lovely edition. Um, okay. Just not, bits of it were falling apart. Um, just not a great stories which these two chaps Bouvard and Pécuchet and they're just like writing clerks they just do like desk work and they kind of decide well we're bored with that they just meet in town one day these two kind of portly gentlemen and they just say you know what let's quit our jobs and live together and one of them inherits some money and they just say yeah that's grand let's buy a farm and off we go it sounds very very wood housing it is a bit actually yeah and I'll be honest here, the premise is really good, but the actual execution in the book is not. Oh, no. And apparently Flaubert really worried about this book and he spent ages on it, years on it. And he, was, he said really? it was one of the hardest books that he had to do. And it was never finished. It's not complete. All right. Okay. So it was a post after his death. It, yeah. it was released after his death. Okay. It was. But 
I just find it a bit difficult to say that I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the premise more than the execution. Um, but they buy. It's funny because they don't know what they're doing. They just they just got a bit of money, but they're they're useless. So they buy the house and then they run the farm into the ground. And like the animals are dying, and you know they have no idea what they're doing. He, they get the pigs to you know to farm them. Then it says, "Well, he killed none of the pigs, scourged them, and salted oats." The pig sty became too narrow because the pigs were too fat. The animals have struck the farmyard. <laughs> Then it gets too hot and 25 sheep get spoiled. Then they all die. Then three bulls perish because he was bloodletting them and didn't know what he was doing. Like, you know, they're just, they're just faffing about and everything's going wrong. Um, okay. And they're always quarreling with their servants and, you know, things like that. And it's, it's you know, there is some comedy and some value in it. Um, okay. Then they, they just go from one thing to another to another. So they decide, well, now we're going to be doctors. Like with no medical training, but they read a book or two. So they just start like doing doctoring on the, like the medical work on the nearby children in the village, and that's a bit suspicious, you know. The people are getting sick, and then they say, "Well, now we're philosophers, and they argue about philosophy, and now we're historians, and now we're archaeologists, and now we're going to write a romance novel." And they just go from topic to topic. <laughs> right, I, I believe though, um, you know, uh, you know, Jorge Luis, Jorge Luis Borges, the uh, the Argentinian magic realist author, um, he mm-hmm. actually wrote a defense on the book. Oh wow! Where he, yeah, because he kind of wrote. I think uh, not many authors like this book. Yeah, and including uh, you know some of the experts like Julian Barnes, for example, uh, didn't think it was yeah led up to expectation. But Jorge Luis Borges said that Flaubert not only started realism, although I don't believe that personally. But let's just say anyway, mm. that's his opinion. This he thinks he started realism, but that he was also the first to break uh, it apart from it. And he compares it to like being an ancestor, like an ancestor of the Franz Kafka and absurdism, a genre of literature that you're particularly fond of. Doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Samuel Beckett and all those lads. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, did I can't you, get did enough. You, did you get a Did you get a sense of absurdism in this in the plot? I got a bit of. It reminds me a bit of Pickwick, to be honest. Like you know, oh, he's right, just faffing about going from. No, obviously, Pickwick moves around; they're staying still. But they're going from adventure to adventure. They're going from something, you know just faffing about but they they're just not they're a bit bumbling like pickwick you know they're not great at yeah okay okay right okay so again it's, it does sound like woodhousey and also for me and picky wicken so it sounds like good fun but you said it didn't really work that well it wasn't the really idea is great but it's just very boring to read it's just i, I you know it's it doesn't re- match up to the other flaubert works that i've read you know to be honest um, there's what there's a funny bit where one of them falls in love with one of the, the the girls, and he thinks, well, what do girls do when they love you? They either pretend to faint or let their handkerchief fall, and she does neither of these things, so he just doesn't know what to do. It's like, well, how do I? What? What? You know, I have no idea how to progress in this romantic relationship. She has not pretended to faint or or let her handkerchief fall. They don't know anything about love. They don't know anything about anything. It, it is, you know, it is quite funny. Um, and there's a funny line where they're talking about their different books and they're learning languages and doing this and that, and they say. Spanish and Italian books, they say the languages, Spanish and Italian, scarcely serve any purpose other than to enable people to read dangerous books. <laughs> so they're just like really worried about this foreign literature, like coming into their, to, obviously it's set in France. Um, but the guys, you know, at one point, one of them wants to marry one of the servants. So he wakes up really early in the morning and does all her chores for her for the day so that the <laughs> other one doesn't find out, but then keeps paying her to be the servant. You know, it's, there's some ridiculous things. Well, that sounds good. Like, it sounds like you, you reluctantly kind of enjoy I, it. I like bits of it, yeah. There's also yeah, a sad it. moment where one of them gets a girl pregnant and just kind of kicks her out. So that's not nice. But, um, oh, okay. you know, the, kind of, yeah, it's a, that, that's more typical Flaubert than anything else, actually. <laughs> right, okay. 
Uh, you know, the whole thing with these unfinished novels, it's, it's, you know, I mean, like he probably didn't want it to be released, so you can't really blame him if it's if it's if it's faulty at some parts. You know, I, I wouldn't be happy. Yeah, yeah, um, I think that's that's fair. Yeah, in some cases, it worked. Like you know, um, Master Margarita by Bulgakov that was released after his death in the forties, and that's a, a great book. But it was still you can still see parts of it, and it's it's just it's something to take into consideration. It so is it's unfinished, yeah. so let's uh, the guy probably. I was oh, more okay. impressed just by the lovely edition that I had than by the actual book itself, you know? Yeah, actually, yeah, I mean, it was it's a lovely um, edition, my God. And, and it was released so shortly afterwards, so I mean, like, well. Yeah. I was also disappointed by the Balzac that I read, and that surprised me even more. So this is called The Illustrious Goodis Art. Uh, it's immediately a swindle because only about a quarter or a fifth of it is the illustrious Buddhist, Buddhist art and the rest is the muse of the department. So it's essentially a short story followed by a novella that they called by the name of the short story. So very little of this book is actually what it's titled, the illustrious Buddhist I believe art. it's called, I believe that's post afterwards, it, this method is just called the Anna Karenina method. I'm not sure you heard of it. Which is <laughs> I've heard a little like, bit about it, yeah. We, we basically put an agriculture <laughs> book or just something that's not related to the actual title and then you have a little short story in the middle. That's how it's done and that's what Balzac was, uh, was perfecting here, the Anna Karenina method. Um, Indeed, yeah. I'll be honest, the stuff about Godis art is funny. So he's this... Um, mentally ill gentleman who uh, once a year he thinks he's selling two casks of wine but they don't have any wine anymore and his wife goes along with it and she gives him the money and he's happy and he puts it under his mattress and he forgets all about it a day or two later you know um uh, but then this this chap comes to visit and and they send him to the house as a bit of a joke and he makes a business deal with this guy and he thinks he's buying the two casks of wine and then he realizes the whole town have swindled him and it's kind of funny that way and then he goes off and he said you know tells people i never visit that town and they have a jewel at one point and all the usual things you know um, all right. And what's it called again? Sorry. The illustrious Goodisart. Goodisart. Okay. okay. I haven't heard of this. One. Um, and the short story is quite enjoyable, but then three quarters of the book is something else: the muse of the department, and it's just boring. It's your usual upper class people kind of trying to care about themselves, and you know, there's this, there's this, um, there's this girl, um, Dinah, and she lives in the countryside, um, obviously in France again. And she eventually moves to Paris. And in the countryside, the girls don't like her because she's smarter than everybody else, right? So she talks with a man and she, she no, no one will really visit her because she's the kind of queen of the region type thing, you know? But then when she goes to Paris, she is able to talk to people more and she gets a big crowd of people around her. All the men gather around her and all this kind of stuff. But then there's the usual Balzac stuff. She's openly cheating on her husband and living with another man and, you know, all the stuff that you get in, mm. in, in typical Balzac. But there's just not a lot of plot to it. And they fill a lot of time by telling stories. They tell a funny story about this woman who's like cheating on her husband and she's giving birth in the next room, but the husband doesn't even know that she's pregnant. So they sneak the father in to like help her give birth. And then the baby's stillborn anyway. So he kind of smuggles the remains away. And the, the, the husband never finds out, even though he's in the next room asleep. And, you know, they tell okay. stories like that. Um, and they're trying to tell the stories to tell her not to cheat on her husband, really, because they think that she's these types of things might happen to her. They're giving her like warning stories. You okay, know? okay. Um, and again, there is that little bit of kind of humor that they're trying to give her warning stories, but she's openly in love with this guy, and she starts saying things like, you know, we will only part when I die, and you know, if you want to, if you want to break up with me, just kill me instead. My love is unlimited, and there's a lot of this. Um, kill me the moment you no longer love me. 
and you know, I'll kill both of us. You know, this 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 is not healthy. But I do love this kind of passion in literature. You know, oh. um, but for the listeners, don't uh, don't do that. But okay. it's just you know, it's so. one of those yeah, it's one of those things where like even the um, the guy that she's sleeping with, you know they have a child together and he publishes it in the newspaper and then the husband realizes it's going to look bad for him. So he publishes the same announcement and says that it's his child and all this kind of stuff happens, but it's a bit yeah. dull to be honest. Oh, okay. And again, I don't know who the muse of the department is. I think it might be the woman, but I don't know what the department is. Like this is not made clear. These titles are not good. Oh no, that's, that's, you're not, you're not uh, giving French literature much uh... Yeah, much praise today. I did like the Dumas. I mean, these are three authors that I love. I just think it's Wait, none, of, none of them. It wasn't any of their best work. Right, you know? okay, yeah. Oh, and well. that's, that's a shame. But so it's very, very French. I'm telling you, you had a very French uh, literature month. So I did. But not the best of French literature. Not the best. Well, okay. will we pause? Well, now that I've wrapped up my, my French stuff, will I <laughs> pause French. and we'll, we'll hear something that you've read? Yeah. So um, I, I read, um, uh, I would like to tell you about uh, a very unusual play. Have you ever heard of Top Girls? I, no, I haven't heard of it. It's giving me mental images, but I'm afraid to, uh, to elaborate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Top Girls is a play from the 80s by Carl uh, Churchill. And I heard a lot about it, so I just decided to give it a go. And it's basically one of the first proper feminist plays out there okay, okay. and it's it's incredible so it's it's set in a restaurant where you've got six woman characters meeting up for for a dinner but um from these six characters five of them are actual famous historical female characters Ooh. so the first one is marlene and she's a contemporary woman let's just say but the other ones are from different times so you've got isabella bird who and these are actual people so Isabella Bird was an explorer. So one of the first big explorers who happened to be a woman during the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. You've got Pope Joanne, who was a pope, but who was a woman and kept it hidden until uh-huh. the very last moments. And when they found out she was murdered, oh. but she actually kept it hidden that she was a pope. I believe it was in the, um, oh, where was it? Possibly in the eighth century. So yes, in the ninth century. So fair play to her uh, to keep it hidden. Uh, you've got uh, Dougrette, who's really more of a fictional figure, and she's in a Bruegel painting, and she kind of leads a mob of, of women into hell and fighting the devils. Uh, you've got Lady Nigel, who uh, I'm not sure if she's based on reality, but she used to be, uh, she's possibly a, a real person. She was a Japanese concubine in the 13th century Japan. And um, some some thought she was just a prostitute. Some thought she was next kin to the Empress. And uh, you've got Patient Griselda, who is a character in the Canterbury Tales. And also in Boccaccio's uh, short stories. So you've got these uh, women getting together. And basically, it's uh, Marlene is kind of like the neutral figure. She's just a kind of modern woman listening to all these stories from these amazing other woman figures. And you've got some, and they're all very different. So some of them are very more masculine, I suppose, uh, like Dogret, who's kind of more like a, a kind of paid as a as a kind of a strong, burly woman who likes to eat and doesn't talk much. 
but you got Lady Nijo, who's like a very elegant uh, Japanese concubine from the 13th century. You got Pope Juan, who's who's very for who pretended to be a man, but nevertheless she tells like how she made it being a woman, but how she made it up to the being a pope. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's and the the way the play is said, what I like about the play, first of all, I love the idea of getting historical characters. Up. Uh, I love it when it's done that in, in fiction. And also the play is written in such a way that the characters interrupt each other. And I find it very interesting because I actually, reading it, I realized, well, that's not realistic at all. You know, all these plays where everyone is just waiting for the other person to finish talking. I mean, it's all very lovely and dramatic, but I thought it was re- realistic. And these women keep interrupting each other because they're trying to tell their own story desperately. And what okay. we get from reading the play is you read six short stories or six stories mingled. And only if you read from the beginning to the end, do you get the full picture. But it also at the same time reads like an actual dinner conversation where everyone is just... Like a symposium kind of thing. Well, yeah, it's kind of like half drunkenly just talking about themselves and we learn more about them. It's also very it's also very realistic, even though the setting mm-hmm. is really unrealistic. Um, yeah, um, it's, it's it's amazing. And the, the stories in it are amazing. I particularly like Pope Juan, who basically just... This supposedly happened as well. Uh, who basically managed to become Pope uh, because she was so intelligent, really. She was so intellectual. And yes, uh, it's very funny because in the play, the, she says the only reason why she went to Italy in the first place was because Italian men at that time did not grow beards. Anyway, <laughs> so she went to Italy and just became famous because she was very inter- interested in theology and philosophy. But nevertheless, she gets a, a lover and um, n- never having been trained to be a woman, never having been around women, she didn't supposedly never realize that she got pregnant. And she just thought she was getting fatter because she was getting quite good food, quite good meals being the Pope. Mm. And until the last moment, um, then she believed and then she realized, oh, oh Christ, I'm having it. I'm actually, get, I'm actually having a child. I'm actually getting a child. But she's not at home. She's not in her safe place. She's mm-hmm. having a kind of a, a parade or something. Yeah. And she literally gives birth in the middle of the, of the, of, <laughs> in the, middle of the city. <laughs> And uh, I, I just find it, I just find it uh, really uh, fascinating the idea that someone would not realize they're pregnant and um, then actually give birth and it's Pope. It says like, so, so it just describes the scene very vivid that everyone's, everyone's kind of fainting and saying she's the Antichrist because the <laughs> Pope is giving birth. And uh, but it's very sad because, because then they actually take her away and, and kill her and kill the baby and so, baby, kind of, so it's interesting. So they've all lived their deaths as well. So they're kind of like in, um, yeah, they're, they're in the afterlife kind of, or they're in um, purgatory. It's kind of like a purgatory restaurant. They're just mm-hmm. having a meal with and discussing. They're kind of laughing. as well. They're kind of laughing about the tragic incidents that happened. Maybe not that one, but they're also having, you know, the way you would you expect a, a wise woman to look back lightly. That's something that was very distressing at the times. And it just ends up being a big conversation about a woman's conversation. And this was actually uh, made for women, this play, in a woman's theater uh, to talk about women's issues. So it's very much uh, 
the woman's goes and top girl it sounds very misleading i thought it sounds very pop esque and it's it's not really mm. but in the end in the sense you get is well it's yeah, yeah they're top girls because they're they're top what i found kind of interesting is i would have thought a feminist play would have clear feminist characters going against yeah, the yeah. but this doesn't to be honest like it only it's literally about it's kind of split 50 you got the as I said, we got Pope John or 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 Doug Rich, who are more masculine. But Isabella Bird, for example, or Lady Nijo, and Patient Griselda, they're more they're very feminine. So it's, it's there is a dialogue between what kind of feminist are you? Are you going to suppress your masculine, uh, your femininity, or are you actually going to indulge in it and actually make it even more accentuated and mm. really be a strong, powerful woman who's very feminine? And I think the character Marlene, she's unsure because it's the 80s and she's kind of having thought. These are kind of just her thoughts. It's like as if Marlene is just thinking about all these things by herself and she's taking these characters to represent certain aspects of herself. Because patient Griselda from the uh, Canterbury Tales, the ultimate kind of submissive wife and the things she put up with are quite like vile, including getting her she just giving her children to her husband and then he killing them supposedly and then and then you know and marlene being a woman for the ages like shocked and said i can't listen to this or yeah why did you do that and she and patient risuda said well because i i promised that i'd do anything my husband asked me to and um yeah they're just there's some wild opinions going on wild stories um it's like a really interesting read yeah, yeah, and Lady Nijo is a concubine, but then she actually becomes. She, at some point, she says, "This, this is enough now. I'm actually going to become a priest, a kind of a sorry, kind of a monk." And she supposedly walked from one end to from Japan to the next, and back and forth. And she supposedly walked around Japan for twenty years. So wow. these are really top girls. These are really top women who've done some unusual stuff. Um. So that's yeah, it's kind of like a history of them. It also a, a dialogue. What what can we learn from all these women from past and and mm. recent past and and different societies, even from Japan to whatever to Italy. Yeah. So it's wow, interesting. Yeah. So that's top growth. So Carl Giorgio, and um, it has been included in many greatest playlists. Um, so I think it definitely deserves that that praise. Nice. Do you want to do another one, or will we go back to me? Uh, yeah, go back to you because the, cool. the other one, the other books I've read, they're very different. But I'm looking forward. Okay, to Okay, we'll about. we'll get to those in a little bit then. Exactly. Um, by the way, I should just mention real quick. I've been taking classes on the Tudor queens of England, like Henry VIII's wives and mother, and various things, as well as the Mycenaean world, and um, and my art classes. So I've been keeping myself very busy, you know, with my, well, with my adult learning. And you do keep you do have an eclectic mix all with it. I believe last time it was Aurelian, uh, or Orwell and Ireland, and and how to make shoelaces in Rome, <laughs> in Nero's Rome, or something like that. Yeah, it's always something something suitably yes. random and, and eclectic. Yeah, <laughs> how to knit? How to knit? Um, you know, how to knit jumpers. And Agatha Christie style, you know, that kind of thing. Not so much skiing lately, but, you know, interestingly, last night, because I was in the ski society of a university I've never been to and didn't even know where it was, I had to go to the formal last night for the, the society. 
So it's very strange. I'm just like at this university event for a university I've never been a student of. I'm 10 years older than everyone else there. And I'm just there all suited up at this formal stroke awards thing. It's very bizarre. Like, I was like, what, what, what's going on? Like, why am I here? What's happening? And it was the, I had to get a bus for an hour to get to the damn place. And it's just why really... Oh, I don't got I don't get it. What was the point of calling? You just oh, I went with the other ski right? guys. So I had some friends there, you know. So it was a fun evening. Um, it, it was really enjoyable. But okay, on the yeah. face, of prima facie, yeah, it just seems a bit uh, bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, yeah, you know, you're not, uh, you know, it was absurdist, a... man. You know, Beckett's got to play about me and in, in the ski club. You know, I think you you, you de- deserve to be in a play. You deserve <laughs> to be in a play, guys. Uh, the next thing I read, you might know this chap, uh, PJ um, Miguel Hernandez. The poet. Oh, I love Miguel Hernandez. Mm. Well, 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 well done. Where are we going here? Is that one of his plays or his poems? Poems. Uh, poetry anthology. I'm very surprised you read that. I'm positively surprised. He is one of my favorite uh, Spanish-speaking poets. Did I recommend him to, to you? Is this no, I, it, someone did recommend him. Uh, it wasn't yourself. Um, okay. And I, I had this nice edition. Sadly, I dropped it in the bath and some pages got wet, but uh, oh, it's, doing, it's doing well. Miguel wouldn't mind. Well, I read I read them in Spanish, and I have a second book which I've started. I'm going to just finish off this weekend. There's no need to kind of review it separately, but they're in English. So I, although the English translations I can immediately tell aren't going to be as good, I might mm-hmm. get more out of it because, like, although I can read yeah. a novel in Spanish, I'm relying a lot on the context to know what's happening, and in a poem that's harder, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be missing a lot of the things. But I I just going to just spend two or three minutes on it. There's not really a lot to, to talk about, but. Uh, I like some of these are nice, and I like the more romantic ones. I think my favorite is Estuboca, and he talks about Estuboca mujer todo eso, um, masica y dulcemente en un beso. So just just like it's a kiss, it's somewhat a kiss, and about the mouth. And uh, I like those kind of romantic ones. Uh, I like his shorter ones, but he has an interesting one as well. Impossible, quiero morir riendo, no quiero morirme serio. And it's just about how he wants to die. Um, he, he doesn't want to die seriously. He wants to die laughing. He wants to have kind of a, a nice time at the end. He says, yo quiero morir viviendo. He wants to die living. He wants to have a happy life and, and die that way. So they're very simple poems. Some of them are only, you know, less than 10 lines. Some of them are a couple of pages. Yeah, yeah. But um, I really like the romantic ones. I, I enjoyed one called Noria, which um, just for the line... La danzarina de las danzas desnudas, you know, the dancer of the, the naked uh, dances, you know. So I, I like this kind of imagery, um, some stuff about the moon, just all the, all the type of stuff that I would write in song lyrics myself, actually, almost. So um, some of these I really liked, but I'm going to try reading some in English just to see if I can get a little bit more out of them, um, because I think that might help me. But... Diego Tanondo de El Beso, so more about kissing. I like all the kissing ones, all the romantic ones, to be honest. Feel um, free to read one out if you, if you like. If you like to. Well, the problem is, I don't know if the listeners want me to read one in Spanish, but um, I can read this to Boca. I think it was my favorite. Um, una herida sangrante y pequeña del purpureo. Del purpureo, you need to correct my translations. Del purpureo, coral, doble rama, un clavel que en el alba se inflama, una fresa lozana y sedenia. I, I find this really interesting. I'm going to ask you a quick Spanish point. There's a footnote for sedenia, and it explains it's de, you know, de seda. It's a, I find that obvious. Is that not obvious? The what? I think uh, that's sedenia as well. Sedenia. So they, they give a footnote to explain what sedenia means, and it's, it's de seda, you know. 
no, I don't think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever use that words. So no. I get, I think, that was one thing I did get from the context. But anyway. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to just skip to the last verse, which is the bit I like. Mm. It's um, nice. I, I like these. Some of them are lovely and romantic. There's a nice one about a campesino, which makes me think of um, sure. playing Carcassonne, um, because there's little campesinos <laughs> in that game. Um, there is a lovely one. Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I like. I, um, I like to read out this one. This is a lovely one um, by himself. It's called "You Threw Me a Lemon." You threw me a lemon so bitter, with a hand warm and so pure, that its shape was not spoiled. And I tasted its bitterness regardless. Was that yellow blow from a sweet lethargy? My blood passed on to an anxious fever, feeling the bite of the tip of a breast that was firm and full. But on gazing at you and seeing the smile that broke from you at its acid act, so different from my voracious, voracious malice, my blood stood still inside my shirt and became that porous and golden breast appointed and dazzling pain. Yeah. You know, I agree with you with Miguel Hernandez. I think uh, he's, a, he's a great poet. I did read um, a lot. I have my own copy in Spain and I used to read a lot of his poems. Mm. Now you did something interesting there. You read it in a language that the listeners would understand. Um, so that's where I went wrong. <laughs> oh, but don't worry about it. No, I thought, I thought, I thought it was good actually. Get, get, I gave them an original and I thought, but also... You guys can now listen to an English. The main version. reason is because I've, I've got the Spanish copy here, but the English copy is all the way across the room. Uh, so I had to read it in Spanish. <laughs> I'm very happy that you read in Spanish. And then Miguel Hernandez, guys, if you like Federico Garcia Lorca, who is more famous, it's just interesting to note that they're often compared because they're from the same time period, but I find them very, very different, mm. I have to say. Because Federico Garcia Lorca, for me, he comes from this very avant garde um, background. And he was very flamboyant, you know, and, and he, he was friends with Salvador Dali and Luis Bunier. Uh, but Miguel Hernandez, sorry, so, so for, for you listeners who don't know Federico Garcia Lorca, Miguel Hernandez, they're both poets from the late 20s Spain, both from something called Generación del 27, Generation of 27, which is a big, important poetic movement, especially in Spain at that time where you've got Spain, Spain is entering turmoil and is about to enter the civil war in 1936. And you see both poets died at, at 1936, I believe, Garcia Lorca too. Um, both poets died very young, but they couldn't be more different, I find, because uh, if Federico Garcia Lorca is the avant-garde and Miguel Hernandez is really the... Um, it's kind of like a bit more the, I wouldn't say working man so much, but it's kind of more like just the, what's the, what, what do you say? Then? Did you also get the impression, and sorry, I think he died, I think he died, by the way, in 1942, a bit later. But did you get the impression he was more, like he was more down to earth, I thought. He was yeah, more, um, he was. Yeah. I mean, do you know what I would say? On the assumption, that is, I'm assuming that the these are written, these are presented in order. They start out quite simple, quite down to earth. They do get a bit more complex and a bit more intellectual, I think, as they go on. But 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 I like that. And excuse me, he's actually a bit uh, younger. Guess Lorca. He would have probably read Lorca first. But I find that he is. He, it's the most simple kind of poetry. 
And the English poem is quite simple, but the Spanish one I find very simple deceivingly. Yet mm. it's not that. It's kind of hard to read, but it feels sometimes like a child wrote it. But not in simplicity, just more like in its imagery, I find. And it's very beautiful. And, you know, the, um, not many people have read his plays. And they're very, they're not famous at all, not even in Spain. Mm. But his plays, absolutely amazing, I think. I might okay. have to choose. That's why I asked you if he plays or poems. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't know he did plays, to be honest. So They're absolutely amazing. They're absolutely amazing. He's got one that's completely symbolic about a, a boy in, in the desert kind of becoming corrupt. It's just it's it kind of like a, it's kind of like a biblical kind of story, and it's just it's just completely innocent, and then like darkness kind of enters his soul. And he's in a desert. He's got lots of animals and plants symbolizing things. Okay. And he's got another great play about uh, got a great play about a bullfighter who loses courage, and then as soon as he loses courage, a tragedy enters his life. But he's kind of like he doesn't know fear, so he's the best bullfighter in Spain. And the moment he starts doubting, well, he becomes a bad bullfighter. Right, and did this guy? This guy died young, you know. Like I see a Lorca, this guy is like he died thirty-two, and he did so much good stuff. I have a lot of admiration. Yeah. So well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this weekend the um, the English ones, and I might, you know, if I if there's one or two I particularly like, I might throw up a yeah. little a little poetry pals episode on our Patreon. Um, Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's do that. I'd love so. to talk more. I'm, I'm a big fan of Fernandez. I'm surprised you. Uh, found him too because he's not as famous as Garcia Lorca in the English speaking world mm. is that right? nice so give it a try guys and I've only got two books left um, one of them is you might remember we last time we interviewed J.S. Latshaw we talked about The Threat Below well uh-huh. I read the sequel he kindly sent oh, yeah. me A Gallery of Mothers and I, I read the sequel oh wow now, similar to the, it? it was amazing Similar to the last one, I don't want to go into the plot too much because these are books where a lot happens. Um, okay. There's twists and turns. There's a big plot. It's fantasy. It's just all sorts of stuff going on. And I think it would spoil the reading experience to kind of give too much away, to be honest. Like last time, we only talked about really the first fifth or quarter of the book, you know, hmm. because there's, there's no need to kind of go beyond that. Otherwise, you give a lot away. Um, but this is the sequel. And... What's happening here is it's split into three separate narratives. So there is a okay. there is a narrative that's actually one of the three is a prequel, actually. And we go back and we get to see kind of what happened with the creatures that were created, the the Croathus, um, these kind of I hesitate yeah. to say monsters, but Mr. Yeah, Sean yeah. had made him Amathus and um and his brother Amparis. So we go back and we have a kind of prequel where we see these creatures breaking away from the lab and setting up their own kind of societies and then they decide well do we still worship the humans or not and one group say yes and one group say no Um, and there is some aspects of religion in there and they sort of say well you know there's an interesting thing actually they say well why would our god design us this way you know he created these desires in us we're killing and things like that and now we're being punished for doing it why would god and that's not and and back when we interviewed Jason as uh, in our last episode, uh, episode seventeen, he did mention that uh, the um, that the two main protagonists in the first book, like there were kind of an inner dialogue he had between his uh, the religious self he had he grew yeah. up in a religious background and the person that's doubting that, and so that is there still that sense of kind of agnosticism and and like to, like this theological I suppose. Uh, discussion 
in the second book. There is. I mean, I suppose when it comes to the two groups, your your sympathies are drawn more towards the smaller group that blindly follow the religion and the ones that break away are the more violent group and they're more supposed to be the bad guys until you get more into it, you know. Um, but it's it's curious. And then there's a second aspect of religion, which is, you know, the girl herself, our kind of main character, um, because she is a god to these people, even though, you know, she's, she, she, she's human, but she's a descendant of the creator. Um, and she wants them to reproduce, even though they don't want to. And she kind of forces them to, and she starts kidnapping other ones to bring them into their community to widen their gene pool and to reproduce. And the outcome is they say to her, the only thing we've proven is that you're a god who doesn't care much for free will. And they do start to, even though she's trying to help them with their survival, they do lose a little bit of respect for her, actually, in the end. Um, there's one or two that's, so she's Iceland, by the way. There's one or two that remain loyal, and that is um, Eva Shone, especially, which is this one that she found um, and that she welcomed into the community. Um, Eva Shone, if you remember from the last book, her, her father had died and she was an outcast, but she joins the community and she's a, a staunch worshipper of Iceland. Um, but now Eva Shone discovers her mother, and her mother's this weird, interesting priestess. Um, oh, okay. And the, she starts to lead the cult and take over from the two original guys, Amathus and, um, and Amberus. And she kind of becomes a, a leader. So there's a lot of interesting things happening. But there's a bit of an animal farm vibe because she finds right. that kind of lab. And she says, well, we've gone in here and we've done some things. And it's almost like they're becoming the humans that they hated. You know, and she oh, wants wow. to set up the lab and start running it the way the humans did and do all this kind of right, research okay, okay. and run the religion. Yeah. And she, yeah, there's a, it's a small vibe, but it is there, you I know. I like it, I like it. Well, a little, a little bit of a nod to Orwell. I mean, it does sound slightly, slightly Aurelian. The, the yeah, it itself, is a bit. So. so we have the three wow. stories. We've got the prequel, we've got the creatures, and we've got Iceland. And their stories kind of come together, you know, near the end. Obviously, the prequel doesn't, the other two kind of come together. And... They, you know, there's there's just dramatic scenes. They're going through tunnels and escaping from weird spider creatures. There's touching scenes. There's also scenes where you, you get annoyed at Iceland because she's still young and she's still immature, you know. And there are right, scenes yeah. where you're kind of like, come on, just grow up, you know. And her friend Adarain's there. and He's now the leader of the town that her family led for 200 years. And he's actually more mature than she is at times. And you're kind of like, okay, come on. But one interesting thing they did is they took away the class divide we talked about last time. So Adarain's first thing is the two classes are the same and they're equal. But the so ones that have been put down for a long time, they do also get a kind of safe space if they want to get away a little bit, you know. And is Jason working on another book after, uh, or is it? Yes, I believe. He yes, about he said there was going to be a spin off in China. And then I think there will be another sequel in the main story as well. So there's a I bit have, more. I love admiration for the guy for um, prolific and I'm really looking forward to reading this book as well. Yeah, these are these are really, really amazing stuff. Um, I just explained last the title, Gallery of Mothers. So this is a wider book, as he says. It's no longer just what's around this one mountain and, and nearby. You know, it's, it, it, we expand a bit more. We see more of the world. And we discover there's more variations of these creatures. There's like an, an amphibian variation near the beach that like are almost see-through. They're, you know, that have kind of mutated over a couple of hundred years. There's um, different um, types of ones that are in just in different places doing different things it's not all just the one group anymore the two groups anymore you know and it's just interesting to see that wider kind of scope and it does it does give us a bigger world which is something he talked about you know having a conscious desire to do so uh, that that's achieved quite well um the other thing i should mention is there's another city called apex 
which is a kind of dystopian city. And so there's not just Mountaintop, there's this other human colony, Apex, where um, the chap who had left, Tra- Travis, who had left Mountaintop, forms this other community. And they say they can reproduce without women. It's all men there. No women are allowed in. Oh, okay. um, but they say they're reproducing. And, and they say, well, how are we doing this? And they send Iceland and, and Adderay and they well, let's find out how they're reproducing so we can repopulate Mountaintop. And there's some moral difficulties about should we get them all to impregnate Iceland because she's the only woman who can reproduce because the rest were all poisoned by the water that the monsters poisoned in the first book. And so there's some difficulties there, but this is a horrendous place. It's layered. Like there's that, um, every tier that you go up, the people above are going to kill you basically. And they come down and they raid the lower tiers. It's not just two classes. It's like a hundred classes that are all fighting each other and killing each other. So much. Yeah. And then it turns out... I don't want to spoil the details, but no, they're not really reproducing without women. And there's some really, really difficult no, scenes with, with sex slaves, um, which are really, really hard to, to, to deal with at times. But oh, man, it sounds like an amazing and powerful imagination this guy's got. I really like um... it's, it's a really, really good um, But No, what was interesting was, while I was reading the scenes about Apex, this horrible place, I looked out the window and there was a building next to me called Apex. So that was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's hilarious. <laughs> Um, when I was in town but yeah it's uh, it's interesting there's some really really good stuff and I I think the guy's an amazing author and I recommend both both in you know installments okay yeah hopefully you can read the the next one and hopefully I can read these Mm. two first as well look forward to it planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> 